Ryan Jeffrey, and this is the Passionate About OSS podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to shine a light on the brilliant minds in the OSS and telco industry to uncover some of about their background, knowledge, tips, and some techniques to share with the listeners. This episode will look at leading innovation into large organizations using OSS BSS as the driver. And as you'll soon see, today's guest is perhaps even more passionate about OSS than I am. His experiences in the OSS industry predate mine, having worked on technical roles with iconic companies such as Convergis, Kramer, Andox, Telcordia, and Ericsson. As an early adopter, he then founded a startup in 2015 to provide technical vision and strategy for OSS in a virtualized world. He's now a principal analyst with the Appledore Research Group with a focus on telco software. Welcome to today's guest, Francis Haysom. Ryan. Thank you for coming on board. So you've certainly worked with some of the heavyweights in our industry at key times during their histories, but let's go back a little bit further. You started in the industry as a developer? Yeah, that, that's correct. I started as a developer at a small company called IPL, not the Indian Premier League, <laughs> uh, which is um, based in, in Bath, which is where I still am. And they were really focused, at, they were a general software house. They'd come out of founders from Logica, in fact, and they did defense, they did telco, and they did a variety of other areas as well. And I guess I, I first cut my teeth actually on an alarm management system for Vodafone uh, that IPL actually, it was in the days where you actually built custom code for um, uh, companies rather than uh, buying products. So in those early days, it was literally Vodafone needed this thing to happen. And, and we coded it really and coded, tested and delivered over a period of about the company for about two or three years. So it, very, very much a good grounding, good, uh, solid uh, software experience, which I think has, has given me a great foundation to build on in the rest of my career. And it's interesting, isn't it, that almost the pendulum of in-house versus outsource versus partially in-house that we, we've gone through a few stages along those lines. Yeah, I think there is a there is definitely an oscillation in it, and I think some some of it is driven by the need for actually true innovation in our industry. Some of it is actually driven by protectionism, particularly as companies have have moved from what I would term is the exciting days of really basically we make money from telco to being a much more utility provider of connectivity. So I think there's a degree of both things. There's a degree of innovation driving that um, oscillation, and there's a degree of protection driving that oscillation. And from IPL, you then moved into the dark arts, into billing and rating systems at CBIS, which transformed into being Convergis. Yeah, it was one of those moves which I think was uh, encapsulated at the time. It, it was very much uh, Convergis, or CBIS as it was then, uh, was a, a custom billing um, software company. They were heavily involved in the PCS initiatives in the US, and then they suddenly recognized that, in fact, the rest of the world had gone to GSM, um, and they didn't have a GSM billing and uh, charging solution. And they and they desperately needed one, so they actually took over a small company in uh, in the UK, uh, based out of Bristol, from former Orange uh, UK people, to just address specifically GSM at GSM billing. And I came in as a development manager there. Very exciting period of two years. 
uh, doing the charging system for one to one as they uh, as they did their release. And it was a, I guess it was a bit like the Wild West, really. You know, the the marketeers in one to one would come up with a we need this in five days for a Christmas campaign and we would busily code it. So it was nominally a product that we sold, but the reality was it was kind of a, a hybrid hybrid beast, lots of customization, lots of configuration and and movement of the product for specific aims. So, you know, uh, simple things like one one phone, uh, one, one account and two phones. Suddenly you've got a, a two month, three month project on your hands and, um, and, and just go. So around about that time, my, my vague recollection of the, the mid to late 90s, there were quite a few of those billing and rating companies sprung up. Was it the fact that uh, it was the, the GSM work that you were doing that made you different and therefore stood out from uh, the others that were popping up? I think, it, you know, it's, it's the class, classic case. There's a new need. There's lots of there's lots of little active niches going on. Lots mm. of uh, at that stage, lots of um, new companies coming coming in. There weren't established products in this area, or the established products were billing systems for fixed operators, not mobile operators. And it's a very it's a very different environment. So yeah. the the opportunity the window was there to grab it. And I think lots of companies in that area took that opportunity in, in the essence they're, they're, they're all slight or if you look at the dna of the existing billing and charging companies you will find all of these these piece parts in it um the big, the big thing for uh the part of convergence that i was actually working for was the fact that they had a extremely capable real-time rater at that point and that probably was its key differential um, post uh, me leaving them, in fact, actually what they did was they merged the billing capabilities of the PCS billing um, software with the real-time charging aspects of the GSM software. Mm. Um, so early early stages, early early foundations, but it was very much that kind of real ability to real-time rate and support, particularly the things like prepaid. And speaking of the, I guess, those early stages, did you actively seek out a career in telco or did it just come to you by accident? I think the honest thing is, no, I didn't seek out a, a career in telco. I, uh, my background, I had just completed a PhD, um, mm. which was actually in simulation of diesel engines for larger maritime uh, ships. I can see um, the obvious correlation there. Which is, uh, which is, which is a direct route to telecoms. Um, <laughs> and I was seeking to use my soft, uh, in my software expertise. It was basically four years of PhD writing software. Um, yeah. So it was ideal to get into a general software company. But I, th I think the thing is with telco software that you, you just realize actually there's just a lot going on. The nineties, mm. the nineties in telco and, and the early two thousands was just a fantastic time to be in telco. Telco was the white hot technology of the, of, of the moment, which is very distinct to the current situation. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a strong believer too that where the money flows, that tends to be where the interesting projects are as well. And at that time, that probably was almost the healthier years for the telco industry. There was specifically OSS. There was a lot going on and a lot still to be invented. That's, I, I think that's exact. At the end of the day, did I plan to go into telco? No. Did telco give me a huge opportunity and excitement and lots to do and developing of career? Absolutely. So why, why leave, really? <laughs> 
So then from, from CBIS, which was uh, more of a pure play BSS, you transition into hardcore OSS over a Kramer systems. Was there a fundamental difference between the, the two of those paradigms even? Well, I think the interesting thing about Kramer was Kramer didn't originally set out to be an OSS company. It was founded actually by ex-IPL people um, who actually basically didn't want to continue to be a general um, software house and wanted to focus on telecoms um, and split off, basically. And the original actually foundation for Kramer Systems was as a, we're going to create a telco product and we're going to consult to find out what that product could be. So if I look back to the first year of Kramer, we could have ended up as a reseller of a billing and charging system from a small company in Ireland. We could have ended up as a GIS system um, for supporting uh, a new fixed operator in 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 Holland, and and really the the idea for the inventory, which ultimately became mm-hmm. Kramer's piece, really came out of identifying a lot of market opportunities. What what we were finding in terms of consulting to the industry as a the eureka moment was realizing on one of our Dutch contracts. Here is a company who wants to go out and buy a product and are asking us to find that product and we can't find that mm. exact product in the market or something that's not good enough and that we think we can actually do better. So that, mm. that in a nutshell, is where Kramer came from and that's why we went into it, went into inventory. Yeah, that's a fascinating story that you founded the company before having the, the product idea. Well, as I say, I, th- I think the interesting thing was probably worth resaying because I can still remember the conversation. I was literally rung up at seven o'clock in the evening. I was working late at CBIS. John Creighton, one of the founders of uh, Kramer, rang me up and said, we'd like, you know, we'd like you to join the band. We don't know what we're doing, but we ha- we know what we're going to do. We're going to consult. We're going to look to leave, create working relationships with products internationally and bring them into the UK and uh, European market. Um, and third, we're going to create a product. That was the plan. And really, like that step, that next career step, really changed the world of OSS. Kramer then had a very big impact on the direction of the industry over the next little while. And as a founding member and VP of OSS Architecture, then standing up of the professional services organization, you had a, a really, really big say in where that went and where the industry went. So it's what did Kramer do differently that allowed it to become the behemoth it was, other than that there just really wasn't an inventory system? Were there others popping up at that time? There were, de- there were, there were definitely other inventories around. Uh, in fact, in my later career, I, I, I worked alongside it. So there were other GIS vendors yep. um, like Small World who wanted to get into this area. There were companies like uh, Granite uh, in the US. There, mm-hmm. were small, so there was a, a Small World reseller in the US that wanted to get into this area. I think two, two things, I think, initially and then longer term made the difference for Kramer. The first was we actually recognized quite quickly that solving this on a GIS platform is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. That if, if you build upwards from a GIS platform, you're kind of bringing the physical world with you and a lot of complexity with you in terms of building up from, up from that. 
Um, we didn't do that. We, we said, yes, you can integrate with a GIS on a downward trajectory, but what we will do is be about fundamentally the, the stitching of the logical, logical to the physical, um, physical as a logical thing, not, not a <laughs> geographic thing, and a focus on, on things like services that are going across it. So mm -hmm. I think in some ways we got that message, that messaging right, whereas a lot of the others were very focused at kind of this physical stuff, this ducks and all the rest of it, which is, which is important, but the you, you miss that middle, middle section. Yeah. Um, I think the second thing, which comes a bit later, was that we, we got some very good marketing and we realized early that a lot a lot of the challenge with marketing in smaller companies is that marketing can can very easily be sort of pigeonholders you produce leaflets leaflets are sent out to people you write white papers um, and we were fortunate to actually get some quite strong marketing innovators really mm. who really helped me understand what marketing can be which is you're about creating a market and what Kramer did, um, you know, we, we explored some ideas, but we we latched upon this term of active inventory and nobody else was selling inventory in that way. So inventory, uh, I, I contrast with one of one of our competitors, Granite. Granite was always about um, selling a inventory of record. It's your database of record. Mm. OK, and we really kind of hammered on that message, which is basically it's great you're getting a technical system but but you're just paying for a very expensive filing cabinet mm. okay but we're going to give you a message which is this information can be actively used in making you faster at delivering orders uh, faster at solving trouble to resolution problems and getting all of that messaging now later on i actually worked with granite technically the products were actually very similar mm. but the message to the market was hugely different and i think and i think this is this is general to the you know the whole of our industry is uh, whether whether it's databases comparing an oracle with an ingress is actually just getting that market message right there isn't necessarily a huge technical difference between uh, between products um in fact products will generally kind of leapfrog each other anyway in terms of technical features. Mm. But if you can get that market message, which is that I'm fundamentally different, I'm, I'm going to make you a better telco. I'm going to make you change processes. I'm going to make you more efficient. That is a, that's a big change. So I would say, actually, that's the biggest thing Kramer did, did right. So final, final point, which is, I think, having got that message, what we were able to attract also is some very high-powered salesmen, salesmen who were used to selling Siebel or um, a variety of other sort of enterprise Oracle um, solutions into telcos who could take that message and use their sales contact to sell Kramer because we're looking like a small Oracle, not mm. rather than selling a granite because we're looking like a small company in New Hampshire. So the active inventory, was that also uh, playing to discovery and reconciliation as well? Yes, very, very much so. Yeah. Um, that discovery and reconciliation was important but i think actually it's an important thing in the active inventory story was was very much actually that the inventory is your master mm. it's 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 it may seem a very strange uh, strange thing and i think i think the world has moved on a little bit now but very much the position was actually it's your model that is right it's not necessarily that your network is right and 
and you can see that today is is that there's a lot of what I would term is handcrafting of the network, um, which actually causes a lot of problems in the network because you have configurations which are all slightly different for slightly different products, slightly crafted by a different Cisco certified engineer, which actually creates a real mess of different solutions, different ways of, of working, which is very diff difficult to give a consistent experience with. So the active inventory message was kind of, again, it's not the database, it's not the filing cabinet in the corner. This is the, we're positioning this at the center of it. You should consider that actually, when you find there's a discrepancy in the network versus what is in what is in Kramer, it's you need to change the network to be correctly configured. So a, a slightly different different mindset. Now that, that has changed a little bit with, um, for example, I, the IPization of the of the network uh, made a lot of that uh, made a lot of that quite difficult because obviously a lot more decision making is being done in the network in contrast to say an SDH or Sonnet network. And so I guess that that was a case of the design really originating at the top of the old TMN pyramid rather than designing and building the network and then um, reconciling data back up to your, your database of record. Yes, yeah, and, and I, I think you you can actually, you can, uh, there's this kind of um, part of that, I think that is now actually very key to the telco, which is this idea of an intent-driven network. Yeah. Is yep. Kramer, I think, was a little ahead of it, which is basically, from a service point of view, from a customer point of view, and the higher levels of the network, I'm not interested in how you, I don't want to be tied to exactly how you deploy it on I603B standard. <laughs> I want to be saying to you, I want a connection from A to Z, and I wanted to have a QoS of this and get on and, and solve that problem for me. And a lot of the things that are happening with softwareization, uh, IPization of the network, et cetera, actually enable you to do that one. Um, and in some senses, some aspects of the OSS just need to get out of the way mm -hmm. um, to, to allow that to happen. And during those times, it would have been really revolutionary. You would have been taking that whole inventory model, the inventory market in whole new directions for the industry. and. I guess as a as a key member that you were as VP of architecture and also uh, the professional services organization, you would have had some influence over where Kramer was going. What are the the things or the achievements you're most proud of uh, whilst you were at Kramer? The two I would really is the whole idea of cross domain uh, across domain inventory. Um, I worked very closely with BT. Um, on this idea of rather than we've got an inventory of technical stuff, much more that we've got an inventory of an abstraction of a set of networks that we can use flexibly to deliver deliver services. Mm. So again, a very much an intent intent based story. I think we were ahead of the curve on that one, but I think in terms of the thinking and the direction. Um, for the industry, that idea of a cross-domain management system, I think, was very, very important. And from a from a story of you know, as a as a startup company, you've you start with the tier twos and the tier threes. Our early work was things like Telewest in the UK, Infostrata mm. in the in Italy, um, which were very innovative but quite small uh, small companies. 
the ability to actually engage with the likes of BT or Bell South or AT&T as it is now um, in terms of this idea of taking their legacy systems and building an abstraction layer across it and being able to manage that abstraction layer in a way that provides what we would now call intent um, to the rest of the network, I would see that as the key thing. And, and getting that message right was, was important. The, the likes of a BT, the likes of a Bellsat were very used to building these systems themselves. That's what exactly what they did. And having that message that, that kind of resonated, you can do this with a product. It was a good time to be a product because telcos were saying we need to buy products, not, not configure things ourselves. Um, having that message meant that we won some very key accounts. So as I say, mentioned BT, Bell, Bell South, Bell Canada, um, Telstra in, in Australia. A second side to that one, again, important in terms of development of Kramer was, uh, it's tied to the professional services, which is how we as Kramer ceased to be the prime deliverer of our own product. And we work very much more closely with SI. So there was a lot of development to what I was assume is the underlying capability to enable partners like Accenture in a number of uh, countries, um, IBM was another, in, in order that they can take our product, they can deploy it, which is good from a technical point of view, but more importantly, they can sell it, sell it for us. And again, that I would say is a, is a, is a key achievement for for me in, in terms of my role as both architecture and in terms of, of creating that professional services, that, that expert professional services that can support SI projects. And that would have been a fundamental change within the telcos. And back in those times, the telcos weren't very open to significant change like that. So were Accenture and IBM, did they kind of have the heft to be able to influence or uh, persuade the telcos to, to make some of those significant changes? I think in some cases they, they have the heft to do that one. Um, I think there is, um, there is always, <laughs> I, I used to describe it as like most large telcos have, have antibodies which are designed to, uh, to expel <laughs> invaders. Um, and those antibodies will find you if, <laughs> if they possibly can. So I wouldn't claim 100% success. I think the, the, the key point about somebody like uh, these, these major um, system integrators was that they they had engaged the right levels of the business to overcome mm. this kind of low level. You know, if it was down to the low level people that were coding their SDH OSS system, there's no way you would get in. Mm. What there was a realization at a much higher level was that if we continue in this way, we're very inefficient, we're very slow, we can't deliver new products very very easily, um, and there was a lot of push from more senior parts of the management that we need to be that much more agile and we need to bring in out outside help to help us do this it's this isn't an engineering this isn't a better engineering what we do today we we need a fundamental change in the way we mm. work and success happened where the right person was in the right place for enough of the time to sustain that and and get that delivered yeah i was just going to say the same thing right place right time but also the right message and to your earlier point about the marketing. Yeah, I think it's 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 timely to actually talk about failure. Actually, in one of our major companies, we we were actually um, selected to replace the copper inventory management system. And 
what was interesting was in terms of, of the start of the project, it was very much one that we we recognised that copper is no longer something that's just associated with the PSTN network. Mm. Um, it's not associated with a telephone number. You know, it's the early days of DSL now. Mm. We we need something that manages copper mm. that can then provide that as a, a generalized capability to whether you want to deliver a PSDN, an ISDN, a DSL, a private wire, whatever it is, it's mm. just copper. All of that, all of that good stuff. You need you need a copper pair or you need multiple copper pairs. I just want an inventory system to do that. And that was a really great piece of work, which was fantastic. The problem was that what then happened was it got bound up in the existing PSTN practices and, and processes. Mm. So that what what had started as a, we want to do something different, very rapidly turned into a project where Kramer was being asked to deliver exactly what the existing legacy system did. <laughs> um, down to the level of still managing telex lines to Zimbabwe. Um, and the project fundamentally failed. And the reason it failed was there is, there, there is no business case on this, on this earth which will actually uh, completely replicate an existing working system. Mm. There's no reason to do it. So why would you? It's why it's huge amounts of COBOL are still alive in the system. It's because they work. Why would you replace them? That you need that commitment. And I think you need that vision. I want to do something different, not I want to replicate things as they are and, and that uh, that is actually the biggest problem through our industry is transformation mm. is is that success in transformation is when you do little tiny steps but you have a vision in where you're going to transformation fails when it's kind of like everything needs to change at one time and by the way it needs to do exactly what it did before um, <laughs> yes yeah, the, the old saying goes uh, success comes from doing things differently so after nine years there at Kramer, an even bigger fish came along and swallowed up Kramer. So you then had the task, the unenviable task for that matter, of roadmapping Kramer into uh, the Amdoc stack. Uh, tell us a little about that experience. Well, it was interesting, actually. Um, the Amdoc's acquisition for me was actually not quite the shock I think it was for some others uh, that in that I had actually been working with Amdocs particularly on the BT account for a period of about three years so in some ways we had bumped up against Amdocs quite heavily both to cooperate because they were a layer of the stack above the the old clarify application which Amdocs acquired was above our cross-domain solution um, in the BT stack so we bumped up against each other and they, to some extent, were doing a kind of cross-domain service mm. aspect. So we were constantly battling for who's really doing the cross-domain cross stuff. So I, I had quite a lot of time working with their architects. I understand, understood their, their products. And in some ways, you could argue BT was one of the catalysts for Amdocs acquiring Kramer in that better own own the troublesome neighbor underneath you than um, not attack your proposition um, in some major telcos. So mm. um, it, it's only part of the story of the acquisition. But as I say, I've, I've been working with them for two or three years beforehand. And so in, in, in essence, I, I, could, I could actually see whether you were very clear where the boundaries of what was 
good in Kramer and what was kind of a stretch for Kramer and you were quite clear about what was good in Amdocs and what was really a stretch for for Amdocs and actually the the fit between it between the two companies is actually very easy in 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 that respect I think the bigger challenge for Amdocs was it was their first step into OSS they they obviously have a much more significant piece of OSS now I think the challenge was the culture. There is a very different culture, both in OSS companies versus mm. BSS companies, but probably more importantly, there's a big culture or was a big culture change then. I think it's it's slightly changing now, but there was a big culture change in that the BSS, the BSS sales and marketing initiative is used to talking to the CFO. They used yeah. to talk, you know, the billing system is the most important thing for a CFO in the telco. So they, in essence, they've got a shortcut to money, um, money and influence in the company that you as an OSSFI vendor don't. You, you, you are going in through a CTO, you're going in through a, um, a CIO uh, mm. perspective, and you're going in to operate, you're, you're being, you're, you're about the, the underlying operational management of the network. And you're also, from an OSS point of view, you're sandwiched against the network equipment providers so you can. I've always argued that OSS is a bit like the Cinderella of of telco. Is that you've got two very big ugly sisters next, <laughs> ugly or maybe beautiful sisters next door to you of BSS and network equipment, yeah. um, and it's kind of along the lines of a telco goes. First of all, I know I need to build a network, so I need to buy some equipment. They then go to say uh, a BSS provider and say, well, I know I need to build a customer. Yeah. I need to manage customers, so I'll buy some of that, and then they they do OSS are kind of like, oh, we got to stitch this thing together and make it work. Um, and that means that there's a very, there's a, there's a very different, I think, uh, feel and vibe to the way you sell, sell stuff, um, the type of sales cycles that are available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my, my sense was there was a large education for Amdocs in, the, in that area, which is that of this very different layer within within a telco um and and how to sell to them mm. but i think that transition uh, that transition worked well so as chief architect you found that that ability to roadmap and and dovetail the two products together was relatively easy partly because you'd been working together but yeah I, I, as i say the, they fitted they fitted well there was um a good story and in and in fact actually many of them the assets that were in the clarify solution and, and many of the assets very readily fitted on top of mm. there was an existing model for customers and services in kramer but we really hadn't it wasn't very well exercised you were able to put that kind of thinking on top from clarify or Amdox is what they called it then, but um what, what had been clarified and you were, they, those two were able to be brought together quite red, readily as chief, chief architect, I guess you would have led some fairly important innovations during that phase as well. So you would have led some really significant accounts. So you touched on BT and also some fairly significant product acquisitions during that time. Yes, I think the, I, I think the, the, the one that comes to mind was actually Jacob's arrival in, in terms of really just making, making it fit in the organisation, actually taking, taking a company which had a probably actually pretty much an 80% overlap with what Kramer did. I think the thing um, we did success, uh, successfully, certainly in terms of the early stages, 
was how do you bring this company on board? How do you remove duplication very quickly, um, but at the same time ensure that you retain the the twenty percent that is different mm. um, and, and make one plus one equal three, not one plus one equal one point five. Mm. Um, and I think we succeeded it succeeded very well in that in that area. You know, uh, Jacobs Rymel came much more from an IP. Uh, perspective, um, you know, uh, statistical networks rather than um, prime division multiplexing networks. And they also came from a, a slightly different client base in that they were very heavily um, centered on cable companies. And I guess that was the period too, where we were transitioning from the highly structured SDH, PDH type world to a more IP centric network. So did they kind of help take the inventory model to, to those new places? I can't say because that was around the time I actually left, uh, <laughs> okay. left, um, left the company, but I, I think, I think there was a, we're, we're in an interesting position where, the opportunity of the network technology is is often lags um, or sorry is, is well ahead of the ability of the operational organization to use mm. it and ip i think is is a good example of that one i think we're only, we're only now in some sense is truly getting to the stage where ip is being used fully in a, in a telco the 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 reality of ip when midway through the around 2005 2010 was that it was very much nailed down to make it look like a circuit that you ma- you manage the network because you made it look like a um, a circuit switch network of the past um, mm. and that you you whether it was MPLS you know nailing down routes through the network or whatever that mm. you were in some way trying to make it fit with your existing circuit based model Mm. Again, things have changed now. You're beginning to get much more of what I would term is the network itself managing itself and the idea that you're just telling the network to give an intent and um, uh, direction, I think, is there. IP could do that a, a little way back, but it actually needed it needed the change in operational processes to, to enable you, uh, you know, enable you to do that. And then from uh, Kramer slash Amdocs, you then moved across to the enemy at Telcordia. What inspired that move? I think the interesting thing I felt about joining Telcordia was um, it was was kind of just mixing it up, uh, mixing it up a bit. Really, is you could see the applicability of my skills to uh, Telcordia, my ambition, and Telcordia at that point was very much looking for those skills. Um, So it was, uh, you know, they they came, they came hunting, and it was the right kind of the meeting of minds, really. Mm. And again, that was so that was mid 2000s. And the industry and inventory was really going through some massive changes at that time. And you got the chance to lead a product strategy there. So had you developed any techniques uh, during that time to to basically take innovation and product development and make it more systematic? I think it became more systematic actually later later in, in Telcordia. But one, one of the things, Telcordia was an interesting company because in one, it was actually three, if not four, major parts to it. And the parts didn't actually very naturally sit together or there was a limited amount of cross-sell 
sell between them. So Telcordia was fundamentally a traditional business which had been spun out of AT&T back in 1984 when the company was split together. And what became Telcordia, what was then Belcor, was really a kind of what do we do with this centralized software company that delivers all of the OSS systems to all of the baby bells. And, And that business was extremely profitable. It was a business which wasn't wasn't actually competitive. It was it was so you had a um, part of the business on doing uh, US OSS, which was extremely profitable, but did, really didn't fit with any anything which would exist outside of the the exist, existing AT and T environment. Mm. You then had an international division, which which was trying to create the same thing for the international by either building it themselves or um, acquiring companies like Granite, um, Mm. for example, to create an end-to-end solution. But that company needed a lot of investment at the same time was not necessarily hugely profitable in the same way as the traditional business was. So there was always a kind of... tension in that which is to say in order that I can expand my and to be clear I joined the international um, part of the business there was always a tension between I need to invest in a, an international business that may not make be hugely profitable at the beginning versus I can I can I have a hugely profitable business with my um, traditional traditional customers um, so there was a degree of tension there. And, and I say the third part was the there was a billing, a real time charging element and a research element. The thing in working in the strategy for Telcordia, I think the thing we were trying very hard to bring is to try to join up the, the dots. If you are a Telcordia charging system um, vendor, then at least have the hooks that say, actually, it makes a lot more sense for you to buy a inventory solution because it's going to align with what you do here, or um, you're, you, you will leave you will leverage um, some of the research aspects that came out of um, Telcordia as well, and making them much more visible in the product roadmaps of the vision. I, I think in honesty, that that was where we were trying to make the the systemization of it was about, you've got all these feature functions, but can you tell a story, you know, how can you tell us better, a better story of why this versus another aspect? A a good example would be two products that were in the inventory space were Network Engineer and Granite. When I joined, they could have been in different planets, but we were trying to create that message, which is these things together work better together. Um, if you're a, if you we sold you network engineer, the obvious choice is for you to move to Granite. Even if you've chosen another inventory elsewhere, there's a natural here's a natural path here's a, here's a natural business benefit that will will flow flow from that. Yeah, to make them bolt together more more logically. Yeah, it's telling. It's I think a lot of it is telling us. Uh, I think the more you can tell a story, the more you can tell a. This is where you could be. The stronger your proposition becomes. Mm. Uh, the more you just rely on. I've got you know this is this is whoopie doo technology. It's kind of like well everybody's got whoopie doo technology. 
And then came a, another massive buyout. So the second of your career, I guess, with Telcordia being bought out by Ericsson in 2012. You became head of innovation. Did your role change much under Ericsson? Yes, I, th- I, I think I think initially um, the head of innovation was uh, slightly later in the um, uh, the process, but in, initially a lot of it was was just simply creating how do we create the strategy for what what was to become effectively a software group within um, Ericsson. The, actually, the biggest challenge was Ericsson had a big BSS. So it, you know, everything's of the, um, the the network equipment part of it, but it had a it's had a huge uh, billing and charging um, system, which was with Telcordia bound together to create this BSS OSS, hopefully world beating proposition. Mm. Again, I think some of the some of the challenges in that are the same ones as Amdocs faced in, in acquiring Kramer is that OSS is a very different business mm. from BSS. It has very different uh, revenue streams as well. Um, so a lot of a lot of it was a kind of a, 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 a people and expectation of what it takes to sell OSS versus BSS. Mm. I think the second area which was key in strategy but was actually probably the most difficult to actually overcome was the software versus hardware um, Mm. sales problem and Ericsson is not the only company that has faced this you you can see this with Nortel when it went out and acquired software you can Ericsson uh, Marconi they've all gone out and acquired software they haven't necessarily been that successful at at making that a sustainable business and i think that fundamentally that comes down to if you're going into a hardware company hardware sales tends to give Mm. software away and and there's not much you can do about that that when i i remember a conversation in one particular customer with a key account manager and we were coming in to sell the software and his first message to us was basically, you will do nothing to interfere with this hardware sale and this <laughs> hardware sale. So all of our stuff about selling a vision of what you could do in the future, he didn't want any of that. He didn't want something that could say, I'll hold up on your sale of this piece of hardware because mm. I'm investigating a vision of, of software in two to three years time. Mm. Absolutely, you know, verboten. So, and... And I don't, I, I'm still to see any equipment vendor actually manage this. Possibly the best example I've seen of success in this area, and it's been done by effectively making separate companies, is NEC and Netcracker, Netcracker yep. which is that Netcracker is a clear software company, whereas NEC is a clearly a hardware company. They collaborate, but they don't step on each other's toes. Correct. With Ericsson, Ericsson hardware was never out of was never out of the way of that problem. The I think the other the other challenge for Ericsson in this area, and uh, and it speaks to the kind of what happened subsequently, is that it didn't. It looked like a kind of acquisition of bits. It didn't then articulate that and give a very strong sense of of why Ericsson for software. So I, I you know I, I think it. it it became a kind of uh, the expectation was we've got these assets, we can now sell more, we can sell the hardware, we can sell the OSS, we can sell the BSS. 
but it didn't kind of it didn't kind of work out on that one because I think the piece parts were still trying to sell looking in the rear view mirror rather than a sort of front view mirror, which is which we now know, which is the softwareization of network, the mm. blurring of what is network versus OSS versus BSS. In my in my current work, you know, my view is everything everything becomes software, mm. and when everything becomes software, it's a very different sales model. It's a very mm. different vision model. It's a very different strategy strategy model. Ericsson still Ericsson came to you as a OSS BSS company strapped onto a network equipment. Mm. mobile network equipment company yeah it's such a valid point i see that as there are three distinct models almost that uh there is the hardware there's the software as products and then there's services and each one of them have distinctly different mindsets as an organization and it's really hard to bring yeah any two of those together so you're exactly right that netcracker and nec are basically at arm's length but they come and back each other up when they need to but are largely run separately so i also remember distinctly i even wrote a blog back in 2012 during the acquisition so ericsson paid 1.15 billion pounds for telcordia and I could see that they were great people. They were great clients, revenues and IP there. But as an outsider, it just seemed like they were putting billions of dollars to buy millions of dev hours on older technology at a time when there was a real technology inflection point in our industry. Was I missing something as to yeah, the value of that acquisition? It just seemed to not gel with me at the time. Sadly, I don't think you were missing anything from a, I, I think there was some, uh, you've got the sense that uh, the strategy in Ericsson, the strategy in Ericsson at that point was very much one of actually saying, actually, our business in network equipment is going to massively shrink. That, that, mm. that was the, that was the mantra at the highest level of the business and, and that we need to create um, that our value in the future will be in services and it will be in software products. Um, Again, different mindsets from the hardware side. Uh, which, are, which are very, very different mindsets. And you could say Ericsson therefore said, right, we will do a very sensible thing, which is to say, okay, we can predict 10 years of really strong network equipment sales in this area, but we're going to start investing that money. Given we think the future is software, and given the future we think the future is services, we're going to start investing in creating those divisions. We've got we've got the beginnings of a software division in terms of our billing and charging. Um, we need to augment that so that we are a telco, you know, we cover all the bases in terms of the telco. So I think in terms of the strategy, it's a very logical fit to look at Telcordia because Telcordia ticks the box. It's it's got lots of OSS. It's got in your billing and charging. I'm I'm actually take I'm actually combining and I'm taking out a competitor. Taking out is the wrong word. I'm 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 acquiring, I, I'm I'm making myself a bigger billing and charging. Mm a billing and charging company and i'm also giving myself a a shift into the us i think so in terms of what i think they were buying i think that makes a lot of a lot of sense but the reality underneath it is to your point is that the majority of the revenue for telcordia come from the 
big open-ended contracts to deliver very basically still PDH and sonnet management systems mm. um, in the form of Turks equipment validation processes in the in the form of Osmine things like common language which is um, in a lot of the rest of uh, the rest of the world could be termed as I'm I'm paying money for names so there was a you know there was a highly valuable business but it was totally us and it was totally based on on existing practices not mm. uh, not the not the future so i think in your analysis i think it's it's a fair point it's the distinction when i need to buy a, i need to fill a gap called lss mm. tell cordia fits that gap and possibly not going to the next level of detail well, how much of that is the future and how much is that is the past and that's that's what was discordant to me i guess was okay so 1.15 billion buying OSSBSS assets that were probably had their origins in the 90s or thereabouts. And why not instead carve out a few hundred million to go and develop something new? But obviously there's other business factors like the existing customers and uh, okay. hit the ground running concept. I think you're being very kind. Some of the assets of Telcordia had their uh, genesis in the 1970s. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that must have been a very interesting time. But then, um, then I guess you made the transition over to being CTO of uh, Virtualized World Inc. And you could obviously spot the the new trends happening, the virtualization of the network, digital transformation being major major trends coming through. Is and that was around 2015. Yeah. Is that the reason why VWI was set up, or did you have other things in mind? Yeah, for um... It's actually a, a few colleagues actually from Telcordia and uh, then Ericsson. What, what we sensed was that there was an opportunity, the the opportunity in softwareization, the softwareization of networks um, was very important, and and that the OSS capability around that actually needed to fundamentally change to properly properly leverage that that the flexibility the ability to be much more dynamic um service on demand existing oss didn't didn't really hack that it's still mm. very much based on a stat you know things being static so we we set out um i think at the highest level was to create a, a flexible service orchestration um mm. solution you know leveraging some of our background in terms of intent the ability to encapsulate across domains the ability to bring new domains into the into the picture very rapidly to bring in part you know partners and third parties into the mix of things into in terms of the enabling telcos to be much more rapid dynamic innovators of new services mm. and more particularly rapidly be able to put the, the components of of network into other people's services and so we um, invest, invested uh, about two years in terms of uh, creating a proposition, looked at um, patents, uh, patents in that area. And what we were sensing was that, uh, you know, a, t a telco would want to cr be rapidly creating products, innovating products. I think, uh, and it, it speaks to why we actually ultimately closed Virtualized World then, was that what we began to recognize was the idea was great, but there really yeah, wasn't a market. Really. 
there wasn't a market for people wanting to buy that. We talked that we used to talk about, uh, you know, it's, it's a very specific use case, but actually in one sense, it talks to potentially a thousand use cases you could, mm. you could develop, which was basically, you're going to have a party, you're going to have us, you're going to hire a venue, you're going to have uh, the, you're going to stream the, um, I, I don't know the FA Cup or the uh, Super Bowl into it. You're going to invite people. You're going to send. You're going to allow them to interact with you. Um, if people are remote, which is a great great for COVID. If you, if you're remote, you can interact with this. You know, with texting and messaging and all the rest of it. And we can set that up for you. We can do all the party invites. We can even provide the 4K video streaming. Which, which loads up into your bar and the telco can sell you this complete package. It can and, and very rapidly on, bo- on board that. Sure, you might, you might sell 2,000 of those in a, in, in a year. The point is not that you buy 2,000 of that. Is one, you're high value. You're building in a lot of capability of your network that only you can provide. And by the way, there may be 2,000 variants of this that you can differently provide. But I don't think any telco is anywhere near thinking about that. Mm. So it's it's great to think about how you would do it, but if nobody's going to buy it, it's probably not the right the right area. And I think the way things are happening now, and uh, we'll probably talk about it a bit later. But the, the is the, the telco is probably just actually the telco becomes not the orchestrator of this very complicated product. It becomes a bit part in providing. Um, small levels of connectivity for for that solution. So you then moved into your current role as principal analyst at Apple Door. All of your other roles have been really on the inside and really leading innovation. So this role was definitely at cutting edge, but more on the outside looking in. What inspired that change? I think the thing I, I began to realize actually from the virtualized world one is that there's a... <laughs> There's a gap between the vision telcos have at senior levels of what they want to be versus what they actually are today, and more importantly, how they get from one to the other. And as a, as an analyst, I think you have a a strong role in helping companies understand how you get how you get from now to to that 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 vision. Also, Apple Door, um, we're a small um, niche boutique analyst with, I, I would say, a, a unique perspective in the, the majority of actually come not from an analyst community, but actually come from the likes of uh, working in places like Kramer, uh, either in small companies or in large companies. So we, I think we see the world from the perspective of what it's like to be a vendor selling into it rather than just as a maybe coming in as a route of, of journalism. So there's, a, there's an underpinning of technology and understanding what's real and what's, what's not and what are the real underlying problems. So we're, we're as I say, we're, we're a small company, but I think we have quite a strong role in in, in making that leap and in joining uh, the company, the, the very much the focus was exactly where um, we've been with Virtualized World, which is, which is what is the opportunity in the um, softwareization of the network and the, and the need to automate and innovate on that software uh, network. So all, all of the research was bound up in that area, which, which attracted me, uh, attracted me a lot. I guess having been through a number of roles where 
you looked at innovations and I would imagine you prioritised some over others and gave precedence of funding from some to others. Do you think that uh, that track record actually gives you a better ability to identify the nascent technologies that come across your desk now and which ones are most likely to be successful? I think it does. I'd slightly change the question. I, I, I think the majority of technologies that generally come up across your desk are ha, have some kind of value. What they generally lack is a, biz, a business case that is relevant now or an ability to articulate a business case that is there in the future. If, if, we, if we take actually two of the biggest areas at the at the moment in in our area which is edge and 5g you can see elements of that um in in what's happening there so i see a lot of our our role is is to disentangle the hype and to get the clear messaging as to why this matters or if you want it to make if you want it to matter what is it you need to do that that is differently mm. um so let, let, let's let let's take for example edge as an edge as an example it's seen as a huge opportunity for telcos um, it's it's the it's the it's the thing that's going to enable 5G, um, but unless the very different model of what does it take to um, put kit at the edge, and what does it take to make an enterprise or a consumer want to consume that edge or make it universally applicable, mm. then you're missing the point. So. With edge, you've seen you've seen huge amounts of effort of people sort of saying this is all about enabling self-driving cars or this is about enabling drone swarms. Mm. Actually, rubbish. No self-driving car is going to rely on a network to do the the safety critical parts of what of what it has to do to to drive a car. You simply cannot do that. So there's a mismatch. That doesn't mean that 5G or edge capability could not be important in some aspects of a self-driving car. But if your marketing hype is sort of saying it's central to the proposition, but the reality, the reality is that the, the need is actually down at the level of better entertainment and better uh, vehicle tracking, there's a there's there's a there's a mismatch so a lot of the work i've been doing is things like oh well what are what are the actual things that will really drive business to the edge they're things like you want device augmentation you don't want to have uh, a, a five thousand dollar if, if you can have a twenty dollar device and the edge versus selling a five thousand dollar device actually and and you can augment near the edge say a vr or an ar that's that's a that's a strong business proposition because you're you're allowing a device manufacturer to one assemble things cheaper and you're doing it on the basis of lowering the the barrier to entry mm. there's a whole load of other things about you know how can i disaggregate things in in systems um in factories and uh, and the likes of that so I, th I think the important thing is get beyond the technology and let's, let's understand the business drivers, but also make the case to people that you're not going to be a leader in the edge unless you actually become an, an investor in the edge. I'll go to a very specific point I, I would make for, for telcos. Telcos are very busy 
investing in edge capability to support their networks. But the mindset within within the business is very much that is for the network. I can't have anything else running on that because that is possibly caused a problem to the network. And yet, if you look at Amazon, for example, the reason Amazon has been really fundamentally successful is it's managed to create an environment in which it can run its business and it can share that capability with other businesses in terms of and, and therefore get very high levels of uh, utilization of, of, of its hardware fun mm. fundamentally. Um, telcos have that opportunity, but they have to get over a barrier, which is which is I need to. I, if I'm going to put some uh, capability at a central office, or I'm going to put even put some capability at a base station, I've got to be prepared to share it. I've got mm -hmm. to be able to secure it. I've got to be. I, I, I've I've got to give the value to others, because my ability to to drive out a network is actually my ability to capture this market. If I do it as a invest as a separate stream, I never I never get that value, and in fact, everybody else can do that as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective too. I wonder whether some of that comes from the roots of the telco industry, which was designed for resilience first, and then uh, the services stay on top and operational over that, uh, compared to. Yeah, the likes of the hyperscalers, which it's co-sharing of that infrastructure and then also make the, the infrastructure really resilient as well. I think, again, it's a, it's a change from a software perspective. The, the telcos, you can't live in telco without coming across five nines mm -hmm. um, very, very quickly. But in most cases, that five nines is fundamentally about a a vertical protection of the network you know mm. i've got resilient hardware i've got resilient power serving resilient sites serving resilient prescriptive software and so on and so forth rather than the the, the software view of the and the the cloud view of the network which is very much a horizontal one which is i fully expect everything to fail though mm. fundamentally but i have the ability to spin up something else to stop that so so basically you've got the distinction between of uh, a very resilient vertical stack which is actually very brittle versus a i'm assuming that everything will go wrong mm. um but i have the ability to very rapidly scale heal anything on an on an underlying non-resilient underlying capability that, that, that i build on the basis i know it will fail in some some aspects and transitioning that mindset in telco is is i think the fundamental challenge for for telcos to actually get it you know that they need not just that they're, they're adopting software in the network but they need to be adopting the software methodology the the continuous integration continuous deployment methodology actually in it has a view that you may deploy something that fails but you need to be capable of of rolling it back out very rapidly because you know you don't build on the basis that something will always succeed you build on the basis that some sometimes something will fail and i can roll back very easily so there's a set of mindset changes i think that it's not abandoning five nines it's 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 reimagining how you deliver five nines that, mm. that is, i think is the challenge at, the, at this point if you can do that then 
your ability to share infrastructure becomes so much easier because mm. you've built your systems on the basis that they themselves react react to failure well rather than you've built a system which is fundamentally reliant on every component below it working correctly. Yeah, and I really see the analogy into OSS as well. We tend to monitor the health of the network on a nodal basis. So uh, router switches and so forth, we're, we're looking at the health of those in isolation, probably more so than we tend to look at the health of the services flowing across them. So you know, we, we do NetFlow monitoring and, and so forth, but we probably spend more time analyzing the uptime of devices. Mm. So another analogy or another thing that or came out to me from what you were describing about your role at Apple Door, I see some similarities with what you described as one of the key success points for Kramer, and that was uh, making the marketing clearer. So this complex, uh, challenging, uh, and really rapidly changing technology stack, that it was really successful marketing that uh, and clearer marketing that made Kramer successful in those days and, and untangling the mess of these new technologies or untangling the challenges and making it clearer for uh, roadmaps for the telcos going yeah, I, forward. I, I think that's that's a role we're actually seeing a lot lot more of us for us is is kind of a we we have companies coming to us with what I would term is some really great technology but with a effectively a marketing message which is kind of like it sounds like just about everybody else mm. um, a lot of is how can we help you articulate your that you are solving a business? How, how can we help you so that you're solving a business problem? How can we make it that you're differentiated, not because you've got this widget in your in your software, but because that widget, better widget enables you to do something that nobody else can do? Mm. Teasing that apart, getting that message is is something I think we we do well. Actually, it neatly segues into you know the the, the other hot topic of the moment, which is open RAN. I've just re released some uh, research in this area, and one of the points I think that's key about it, which is everybody's getting very excited about open RAN because it's got lots of new companies around that will do stuff, and some but, significant funding of like, and some significant funding, and there's the whole uh, China. Uh, China sourcing tied up in it. But if you look at the actual underlying market for RAN, it hasn't actually changed for decades. Mm. Is like the, the telcos are investing in it. And the telcos are fundamentally conservative. The majority of them are very conservative spenders. So Open RAN is great, but don't expect the majority of CSPs to buy into open RAN because it's open RAN. You need to buy, you need to be solving actually some pretty other major problems like most companies want somebody to own the QoS on what they're delivering. So when when you buy from a Nokia or you buy from Ericsson, you're not just buying their kit, you're buying their prime role, you're buying, they've integrated it, you're buying, buying the kind of QoS one neck to squeeze if it goes wrong. <laughs> penalty clause on it. So a lot of the success of open rank will be less to do with have I got a great front, you know, frontal interface between baseband and uh, the the best radios on the on the planet. 
because if if that had been the real reason that success was due then all of the stuff on small cells these small cell companies would be immensely successful as opposed to having largely disappeared so open ran success is about an ecosystem forming very quickly which isn't just about the technology but it's all of the the, the, it's the onion around it, which is delivering prime, it's delivering integration, it's delivering verification. So a lot of our thinking in the area of research and that we're aiming, uh, we're working with a number of companies with is how do you position yourself to the telco as being equivalent to a Nokia or an Ericsson and delivering the, the whole suite because that's where the success will come. So I guess the tech, so you've touched a, a little bit on 5G, on Mac, on Open RAN. Those are just some of the technologies. Obviously, there's all of the underpinning technologies as well and that are coming out of IT. So it's proliferating so rapidly. How do you keep up to date? Well, until a year ago, I used to go to shows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, see, actually, the whole COVID thing is actually quite interesting. And I think it's interesting for us as a, as a as a company. Actually, it's kind of kind of almost open a honeypot. Everybody is online. Everybody is having messages. If I really wanted to, I could spend my life on a continuous show now, which is not, not something you could do before. Um, and that's good and bad. What I think from a good perspective is it's giving you actually the ability much quicker to see many, many points of view Mm. uh, because it's just available. It doesn't require me. I could afford to go to a Chinese show once a year. I could afford to go to Mobile World Congress once a year, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now it comes to me. So from from just a information point of view, huge amounts more information being fed from the industry and being able to get that. I think from a messaging point of view, you're very rapidly seeing that a lot of a, a lot of companies sound and feel the same. But that also is, I think, an opportunity for us, which is again coming back to this market message. How do you make yourself? How can we help you uh, make that message clearer? Make that message um, stand out in what is a, a sea a sea of content? Yeah, plotting a path through all of that. And given that a lot of your input comes from yeah, the, the conferences and the online equivalents these days, does that tend to mean that you're looking more at the near term? So the the innovation coming over the two-year time frame, do you also tend to look at more of the longer term, the, the 10-year uh, innovations that are happening, or are they not near enough to be of relevance to you just yet? I think we, being relevant in the near term needs a vision of, of what the future looks like in a decade. Um, mm. We recently created a paper on our vision for 2030. What, what do we see as the big, this was technology focused, what do we see as the big technologies that will shape telco? Things like, um, say, digital twins, the the obvious AI and machine learning mm. aspects of it and and why I think the other area we we look at in in one essence it's a, it's a little bit more controversial is what does the telco need need or or should look like in in the future mm. I think there are there's a challenge for telco in the next ten years and and some of our research looks at this which is that telcos kind of need to decide what they want to be 
they've they've got a history of being at the cutting edge of technology the the sort of the the the, the massive mobile expansion but the reality today is that in in many senses they are a a waterworks for connectivity with all of the exciting stuff the social media etc all happening over their networks if i go back 20 years ago sms was was the thing there was nothing you couldn't monetize on sms for a telco now sms is kind of like a fallback you know it's it's the fallback technology when uh, apple i message fails or or whatever your your messaging app of of choices and i think telcos have found that transition very difficult and what that's tended to mean is that quite a lot of them are sort of say well we need to be media companies or we need to be we do in some way compete with aws or we need to be like we need to be uh, competing with the likes of facebook now I'm, I'm i'm using that as kind of like a blanket term but there's a lot of effort in telcos going into kind of how do we become a uh, media company or social media company or leverage advertising or whatever it is my sense of it a lot of that is a distraction to the core business mm. and it's certainly appledore's belief that there's a need for the telcos to actually kind of focus on on what they're good at and mm. we we loosely use that as a kind of like the utility or lean the lean telco which is you're trying to be the best deliverer of dynamic capacity on demand as easy, you know, I'm making it as easy to consume bandwidth as possible by as many applications as possible. And by doing that, I'm making myself a much more profitable and a much more lean enterprise. And to some extent, the distraction in being a media company or whatever is stopping or prevent, maybe preventing that, that focus on automating the business to use the lean manufacturing of the, of the, of the telco business, which is all very, very possible with the softwareization of, uh, softwareization of networks, network, network should be, it should be as easy for me to consume network, a VPN from a, a telco as it should be for me to consume storage or compute from AWS. It isn't. And it won't be until we address the whole automation, self-service, removal of manual steps, flexibility, exposure of capability. And I think a lot of that needs to be the key, key focus for telcos rather than it's kind of a bit going back to our OSS story is that the danger is you get stuck between you get stuck in the area where the OSS is the OSS that enables that kind of capability always be, is is always the afterthought um, in the business. Yeah, so, and I think um, also the the lean telco a big part of that in my mind is to reduce the variant tree. So the only way you can really achieve automation is to really simplify the number of variants that you're looking to do, and yep. it seems like all of the the activities looking into being media companies and so forth make things a lot more there's a lot more variance in the systems and therefore all of those variants need to be handled by your oss and bss and it's something we probably struggle with the the variant tree that we've already got and effectively it's just making it bigger rather than pruning big branches off to make it easier to automate and streamline optimize uh, all the things that you talked about yeah, actually, 
sort of as a, as a, a, a sort of wrap up actually going back to my Kramer, Kramer days one of the most actually one of the most interesting sales meetings I ever did was with the ex Reuters software um, or, or network business of which is basically supplying um, real-time finance connectivity to the city, well, city of London and elsewhere they were just about to be acquired by by BT and one of the interesting things when we typically went to a most telcos we were told about all of the variants of of technology that were being used how they could use if, if it was a new cisco ios routine how they were using the latest uh feature reuters was almost a complete contrast to that which is they said look we have i think they said they have three boxes that they they used um they used they only had two ios versions for their network which were validated and they, they simply said was that we can only guarantee you know we charge a, a good premium for this capability but the only way we can truly guarantee the cause is is to limit the options mm. and that stuck with me for a long time it's it's a simplification the many of the aspects of manufacturing are about how do how do i minimize my inventory how do i minimize my combinations how do i allow platforms to be reused in multiple products you know the the, the volkswagen the volkswagen chassis is available mm. to you in an audi and a skoda and a Seat is 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 example and telco needs to be thinking in that way too yeah i use the analogy of southwest airlines just having a common platform and being able to continually improve on the the common well understood platform rather than having a number of different uh, planes in the air and therefore that's one of the things that underpins their profitability over a long long period of time compared to other others in the airline industry yeah so what are you currently researching or writing about I'm actually the the the, the major focus at the moment uh, is in in two areas. One of which is uh, the next stage in Open RAN, which is looking at the um, players in Open RAN and to some extent how they are fitting to our view of what Open RAN success needs needs to look at. I've also been doing some work uh, is more in the uh, longer term future is is in the whole area of digital twins um, and the opportunity for rather than an immediate closed loop um, automation sort of longer longer loop automation which which equally applies to open round as well um, which is the idea of using stimulation the power of compute and um, ai to do just basically simulations and emulations that just simply weren't possible before almost the level of um, in some aspects where the digital twin is actually becoming part of the network and the management of the network so two areas an immediate one to focus on open ran um, and longer term one looking at the um, potential in digital twin for telco fantastic and are there any other reports across the the apple door program that listeners should be listening out for or looking out for either existing reports or something that's about to pop in in the future yeah um 
My, my colleague Grant Lenahan has been uh, focused very uh, clearly at the whole the, the synergies between what is what happens in net, network management versus security management. Um, mm -hmm. we, we're seeing a kind of um, coalescing of these two areas, which have been the knock and the sock. Yeah, yeah, in in some ways, but the 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 secure the it, it, again comes back to if if your network your network function and your security function are actually becoming the same thing. You need to automate in the same way you need to be. That's you're building security into the network. You're building automation. So a lot of the sort of synergies in terms of security automation. So um, we have an existing report in terms of um, security automation. Mm. And again, in a similar way, he's now looking at the, some of the key players in that automation, also developed developing to another another level the business case to make the you know a lot uh, a lot of our research actually tends to want to focus that not just the technology but, but what is the business case to adopt this technology that's another area the third one i would highlight which my my colleague patrick uh, kelly is leading is this whole area of how how does the whole assurance market change in terms of again software software in the network mm. well you know what what changes when things become virtual probes? Mm -hmm. What changes when uh, equipment vendors actually build probe capability into their solution? What changes when, in fact, both the network technology and the probe are both software? Mm -hmm. um, so he's looking at a whole number of the sort of trans transformation of of that area. He's also looking at. Well, what do you do with all of the data? What can you do in terms of the AI and machine learning? And what are the real practical cases that are coming coming to the fore now? Uh, and therefore, what is the opportunity for vendors in this area to both position themselves and differentiate themselves? Fascinating space. I love it. I certainly love all those areas. So coming towards the end, uh, have you got any other pearls of wisdom for those starting out and maybe on a on a path of innovation or um, as an analyst? The pearl of wisdom, and, I'm, and I, I'm, I'm going to use it, um, I'm actually going to use the, uh, the Rakadan CTO. I think he, he, he clearly saw this when he started with, uh, well, originally Geo and yeah. in terms of Rakadan, which is just go and look at what the web scalers are doing. You cannot but gain from understand, understanding what they do, what software can really do, and at what a software business really looks looks like. That's where, if, if, if you want to step into telco, and, and to some extent, uh, let's be honest about it, telco is not necessarily the sort of path that the innovators are necessarily treading towards at the moment. But if, if, if we're to get that innovation excitement back into telco, I think we need you need to be looking at them. You need to be involving yourself uh, in them. You, you need to be getting your hands, hands dirty with the way they work and why their methodology enables agility, innovation, um, and change and change operational practices. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant advice. So where can people find you if people found this interesting and would like to talk to you in more detail? Where can they find you, Francis? 
Yeah. You can email me at uh, francis.hasem with an M on the end at appledoorrg.com. You can look at our website, which is www.appledoorresearch.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Francis Hasem. And on LinkedIn, under, again, there's only one Francis Hasem. Fantastic. So really appreciate your uh, being on the podcast, having someone so accomplished in the area of OSS, BSS and innovation across them. Yeah, thank you, Francis. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, thank you also for the audience for listening in. Thanks for listening to the Passionate About OSS podcast. You can find more episodes, more than 2,500 blogs, and our contact details over at passionateaboutoss.com.